The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by Innes Stepman, who is a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute. Um, we had Innes on just over a year ago, about June, July last year, after the Dobbs decision, which, as Americano listeners will probably remember, was the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, which made abortion a very hot topic again in American politics. And in as the sort of on D about it in some Republican circles and certainly in Democrat circles now is that the political script has flipped when it comes to abortion. And whereas in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was an issue that drove out large numbers of pro-life, anti-abortion voters. Now, since Dobbs, it's now a winning issue for the Democrats because we saw in the midterms that the Democrats campaigned a lot on the abortion issue and they mobilised large sections of the electorate who possibly don't or probably don't normally vote in midterm elections. And we've seen various special elections in the last year, including most recently in Ohio, uh, a rather complicated one that's probably not worth explaining, but essentially proved again that there is a large, large demographic um, that the Democrats can tap into now to say Republicans are coming for your abortion rights. We have to overturn them and to, to vote at the ballot. And it's thought that this will have uh, an impact in the presidential election next year. Let me start by asking, do you think that that narrative, if you like, is correct? I certainly think it'll be an important issue probably in the next you know, foreseeable future in terms of elections. Um, as I said last time, I think when we were talking about this issue last year after Dobbs, I think that's a good thing. This is one of the rare issues that's been returned to essentially democracy, small d democracy, right? Um, I think the trend in America and much of the West, the Western world really has been to take more and more political issues out of the hands of voters and those whom they elect and give it either to the courts or to, in our case, the, the ever larger administrative state, that so many of these things are being made, these decisions are being made through bureaucracies by unelected bureaucrats, uh, unelected agency heads, and not not only not direct democracy, not through plebiscite, as few things are, but even by elected representatives, whether that's in Congress or your state legislature, right, or the president, we're, we're seeing this move away from for the last 50 years really or more uh, away from having contentious issues like this actually be a part of our politics. And that's what happened in 1973 with Roe v. Wade. It got this issue, abortion, got yanked out of the hands of American voters who had been discussing it vociferously, right, and then sort of sequestered into the courts. So I, I think this is a good thing. That being said, you know, obviously there are partisan winners and losers. I do think right now this is probably an issue that's making life more difficult for Republicans than it is is for Democrats, although there are 
you know, there are a lot of pro-life voters in America, and a lot of them are single-issue voters as well, part of the Republican coalition. It was not always this way. I think a lot of the alignment around abortion that happened while the issue functionally could not be decided by the people for those decades that it was in the courts, I think a lot of the alignment has changed around the issue in that time as it was sort of sleeper, right? We have this entire pro-life movement built up, right, with wings of it, uh, the pro-life march every every year, which never gets a lot of coverage the way that a left-wing march would, but with, with many, many, many thousands of people heading to the Capitol every single year. So there's a grassroots angle to it, um, along with pregnancy centers and other attempts to get women to choose life and to support them in that decision. Um, and then, of course, there's the legal element that that ultimately did result in this overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? Um, not that it's the only concern of the Federalist Society, but it has been overturning Roe v. Wade for both legal and moral reasons has been at the center of, of the right-wing legal movement for decades now, really since since the 80s. So all of that coming together. And now I think um, it is reshaping our politics in interesting ways. But I think in, at least in the short term, I think you're right. I think more people are, are coming out. We see this even in red states like Ohio, more people are coming out to at least sort of uh, suspend the status quo in terms of keeping, I think, restrictions on abortion after beginning somewhere in the second trimester. You get a lot more support from the American people, even in purple or, or even blue states. But right now we're seeing a bit of a polarized map where you have red states moving to 15 weeks on the outset, six weeks, and then even some conception bills. Um, a lot of those were trigger laws that mm. went into place when Roe was overturned. And then on the other hand, you see Democrats mobilizing in purple states and blue states to pass legislative protections for abortion. And do you think it's forced the Republican Party to be a bit more honest about the abortion issue? Because for a long time, particularly in the sort of George Bush era, I'm thinking George W. Bush era, it was a, a good sort of line for Republican candidates to say, I'm a pro-life uh, Republican, but they never actually would have to do anything about it. Or they very rarely sort of pushed the issue that hard legislatively and they didn't make the amount of progress that the, the Federalist Society and, and President Trump made on the Supreme, with the Supreme Court. Um, so is it a good thing in the sense that the Republican Party now has to be more precise about what it stands for on abortion? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think both parties have been very dishonest in a certain sense about this issue, exactly because there were no real, I mean, except around the edges, there was no real possibility for legislation. The Supreme Court had taken that possibility off the table. And I think it did allow for a lot of demagoguery on either side. It allowed Republican politicians to promise the pro-life movement the moon and say, like, yes, we're for life from conception. And it was good fodder for, back then, at least uh, direct mail fundraisers, uh, now email fundraising or text fundraising. And they didn't really have to back that those promises up with anything because it was basically impossible, except for nominate originalist judges to the Supreme Court in terms of the presidency. Um, but of course, one has many reasons to do that. Uh, the right has many reasons to do that, not just one. And then on the flip side, I mean, the discourse around abortion on the Democratic side, I think there's a huge split between the things that uh, sort of the activist wing of the Democratic Party want and even their own base. Um, it's true that Americans are coming out to support legal abortion. But, but on the whole, the more you dig into the polling on this issue, you know, it turns out Americans are quite close to, for example, the, the, the median American voter is comfortable with, for example, the restrictions in most of Europe, 
which start somewhere between, you know, 12, 16, 18 weeks, right? Somewhere in there, there are exceptions, obviously, for the health of the mother, but there are some restrictions and some hoops to jump through. And there's a hard end point um, somewhere, usually in the second trimester. In other words, the first trimester, relatively easy access. Second trimester, there are hoops to jump through. You need to prove that you're one of the exceptions. Now, there's various, uh, you know, ways around that. In, in some European countries, these restrictions aren't Lead restrictions. They're more. They remind me a little bit of, I guess, the um, the medical marijuana medium term step, right? Where uh, people just had cards and they obviously weren't actually ill, but there were just doctors who would prescribe it, right? And just come in and say your back hurts. Um, so some of the restrictions are like that in Europe, but at least on paper, I think the median American voter is somewhere around there. We spend a ton of political time, and I can point to a few specific instances, for example, in, in national debates or interviews with presidential candidates in the past several presidential elections, but we spend a ton of time talking about, for example, exceptions based on rape or incest or life of the mother, um, which are a relatively small percentage under 1% right, of, of abortions. We spend very little time by we, I mean, the media, the sort of legacy media that leans very far left on this and other issues, spends very little time questioning Democrats about the outside or the unpopular edge of their position on this issue, right? Which is, we had Governor Northam in Virginia before the election there talking about essentially post-birth abortion, right? Delivering a viable infant onto a table and executing it. That's not that fringe a position in the Democratic Party and abortion through all nine months of pregnancy right up until delivery is endorsed by, I mean, pretty sure Bernie Sanders, right? Pretty sure Elizabeth Warren, a lot of like major figures in the Democratic Party endorse abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. That's an equally unpopular and fringe position as the position, for example, of, to ban abortion with no exceptions um, at all. But the media spends very little time pressing Democratic politicians on that issue. So again, that does allow that dishonest discourse where they can signal to the part of their base that really, I would say, cheers for that. And they can still slide by with the part of their voter base or, or moderates, but even, even people on the left who would be horrified to find out that that's actually what the, the, like the position on abortion that these politicians hold. So Dobbs has enabled Democrats to continue being a little bit dishonest about the issue and perhaps even be a little more dishonest because it means that they can uh, drive out votes and indeed create a certain amount of hysteria about abortions in states where it's not necessarily on the cards that there'd be a, a fetal heartbeat ban and, and so on. I, I, I saw that there's a debate last week between some Democratic strategists on whether abortion were a useful issue to campaign on in Arizona because obviously certain states, Democratic voters, would be on possibly on the more conservative side of the issue. Yeah, I mean, again, I think if Democrats manage to frame the issue as we're restoring Roe v. Wade, which in a lot of polls, Americans don't really know what Roe v. Wade did or the framework. I mean, Roe v. Wade did leave open the possibility of regulating in the second and third trimesters for, for different reasons, right? It had this tripartite structure largely overruled by consequent cases after that that shifted it to this undue burden standard, which really did shut the door. But actually, Roe v. Wade, the initial decision, did have this sort of uh, three-part structure where uh, it, it protected as a constitutional right under this very legally dubious structure of privacy, right? Uh, 
abortion in the first trimester completely, but left the door open for certain reasons to regulate in the second trimester. And certain other reasons became available to the government to regulate abortion in the third trimester. So again, I, there's a lot of, of technicality in this issue that I think Americans just haven't, voters haven't dug into because they haven't had to. Um, this is very much a crash course in America. And I think people are sort of falling out. I think the impulse largely for the center of the country is like, let's just stick it where it is for now while we while we examine it and, and get used to the fact that it's it's back on the table as an issue. I think there's a lot of that sentiment out there. Uh, let's just restore the status quo. But of course, I mean, the most noise about abortion is being made in places like New York State and California, where there is no way that abortion restrictions would ever pass the state legislature or in ballot referendum. So it is just a purely vote driving, you know, sort of get out the vote effort from Democrats. I do want to maybe note one thing, which is that this is, puts an interesting contour on the culture wars in America. I think if you go back to the 1990s, the, the two central and 2000s, really, the two central issues of, of the moral majority, right, the issues that were considered divisive cultural hot button issues were abortion and gay marriage. And those issues were sort of frozen by the Supreme Court. Right now, abortion is unfrozen, and I think it's created an interesting dynamic because the main cultural issues that split people in America today are things like curriculum in schools, or things like you know Target and Bud Light, uh, the trans issue, and women's sports. Right, these are the hot button issues and the cultural issues of American politics, and then abortion has been thrown back into the mix, and I think it splits people in interesting ways because there are. A lot of people, especially I would think one voting block, suburban women, for example, but many others, there are a lot of people who are, let's say for the simplicity's sake, they're on the right side of the, the quote unquote modern cultural issues. But by throwing abortion back into the mix, they immediately revert to their 1990s liberalism, right? And they don't want to see abortion restricted. So I do think it splits coalitions in interesting ways that are difficult for the right to resolve. So it becomes a wedge issue then in a sort of nostalgic way almost. So Democrats are reminded of the time when they they were more comfortable because they they felt they were on the right side of progress in the 90s with gay marriage and to a certain extent with abortion. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's an odd redux of 1990s moral majority politics that doesn't seem to quite fit, like the pieces don't quite fit into the modern cultural lines or battle lines. And I, I think, again, I think this is all to the good. I think that we need to deal with these cultural issues that way. I think it's good for the American people to have this exercise in dealing with a very emotional and, and moral issue in the public square. I think, again, the, the, one of the things that I've, I, I'm most worried about in this country, and I guess in the West, is that we are losing, or like that muscle is atrophying, our ability as citizens to actually, and I, this is not a Pollyanna-ish thing. I know people will hate each other over this issue. It's not that they're going to be civic or polite or lovely and sit down in a, a sort of honest and, and uh, stable way and talk to each other, but that's what democracy is, right? It, it's messy and angry and tempers run high. I think it is a good exercise for the American people to litigate, quote unquote, um, it's obviously it was litigated in the courts before, but now it's litigated truly in sort of democratic courts of public opinion. And I think that that is a good thing because there are many other moral issues and foundational issues that we are going to have to litigate 
in this way between citizens who are very, very far from each other, not just in their political convictions, but in their underlying moral convictions, uh, worldview, the way they see citizenship at all, the way they think of themselves as Americans at all, I think are so far apart that it is healthy for us to to fight this one out in the theater of democracy. And I hope that we will be able not only to settle this issue, nothing is ever finally settled in politics, but but to fall into uh, lines with which we can live with each other over this issue. If we can do that over abortion, then I would have a higher hope that we can do it over other issues as well. Do you think it's uh, realistic to think that this issue will be settled with the states? I mean, essentially, Dobbs returned the issue to the states and the states will come up with their various political solutions to them. They'll be voted on. Each state will settle on something eventually. Or do you think the national nature of the media, the national nature of the culture wars will mean that there will have to be some kind of United States position on abortion that is that applies across the states. It will have to be decided at a federal level. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, and, and hardcore pro-life activists have been saying, making this comparison for a long time, but I, I guess I don't mean it in the same sense they do. They mean it as a sort of morally defining issue of our time. I mean it in a much more concrete political way. I, this does remind me of the way that slavery uh, was attempted to be litigated between free states and slave states before the Civil War, in the sense that there is a nationalizing, sort of inevitable nationalizing tendency in the same way that, for example, the free states were being called upon to enforce fugitive slave laws from slaves who had run from the South to the North, for example, to escape for freedom. I mean, in especially in a world where we have planes and cars, it's hard to imagine that if you have half the states with a very liberal abortion regime and half the states with a conservative one, that there won't be a ton of philanthropic money essentially ferrying women across state lines to have abortions in, in states that have liberal laws. So in that sense, it is a very national issue. And we can try to deal with that in the same way. Um, there, there are all these sort of failed attempts to compromise uh, over the slavery issue and, and to respect, respect state sovereignty on each side. But the reality on the ground is that there there is going to be a certain nationalizing impulse. And then you know, kind of like Nevada on divorce, right? Once Nevada has very liberal divorce laws, it's very easy for people to fly in and get divorced from from all other states. So, I mean, I do think there are some nationalizing tendencies. I, I, constitutionally, I happen to think, and uh, here I agree with uh, Instapundit um, Glenn Reynolds, uh, but perhaps relatively few other people, um, I, I don't think there is a congressional power to legislate on abortion. That doesn't mean they won't do it. Of course, Congress has many things that they don't have the power to do. But I, I don't think there's a strong constitutional argument for them to have that power. Um, murder, if you consider abortion murder, murder is very much the, the heart of state power. Police powers, criminal law is generally left to the states. And the exceptions are things like crossing state lines. You know, if the murder victim is a federal judge, presumably doesn't apply in this, in this situation, right? Um, I don't think that there is a federal power to legislate on abortion. I think it really is at the heart of, of state power. And the example that I always give people when I'm arguing with them um, on the right, you know, over cocktails or whatever on this issue is the self-defense issue. So, you know, in Texas and California, there are two different standards for murder. The same act of, let's say, shooting somebody who came onto your property at night 
is murder in California and it's self-defense in Texas, you probably won't even have to go through a trial. And so you could argue using the Equal Protection Clause that Texas is not equally protecting the life and, and rights of the quote unquote murder victim in Texas, right? Whose killer walks free because of a self-defense charge. So therefore, Congress can legislate, right? If they can get through a bill that says everybody has to have the self-defense standards of California. Well, to me, that that would really eviscerate federalism, right? Uh, it's There's something that seems so deeply at the heart of what states are supposed to do and their role in federalism. And I, I think this is very similar. That being said, it, it may well be the kind of issue like slavery where it goes so close to the, the quick of morality for people that they're so interconnected now, the states are so interconnected that it's it's really difficult to actually seriously pare down the practice without a national law. So the, the pressures to do that one way or the other may be very high. That's a very interesting way of uh, framing it with a self-defense argument. I've, I've not heard that before. Going back to the Democrats, if we may, in the 90s again and 2000s, Democrats used to say, you know, we don't want to be the party of abortion. But now they are the party of abortion. I mean, it's, it's almost the most, It's if you look at some elections regionally, it's the issue that they talk about the most, because as, as we've discussed, it's a guaranteed driver of votes. Do you think they're becoming the, the party of abortion? And, and is that a wise position for the Democrats to be? I think they've been the party of abortion for a long time. We've seen that shift from safe, legal and rare to shout your abortion, right? Um, in, in a way that I think is really out of step with the way that most women who actually go through an abortion think about it. I think it's a very small minority of women who treat it like clipping your fingernails, which is really the way that activists want us to talk about that issue. I think that that's, I think that they've made that shift for a long time on, on the side of the left and, and the Democratic Party. They're all the incentives within the Democratic Party or to hold that line, I think. The last of the pro-life Democrats really got excised in the battle way back over uh, Obamacare in the battle of whether or not Obamacare would, would cover abortion, right? So the last of those pro-life Democrats have really been shoved to the margins of the party. I, I mean, Biden's an interesting case on in this because obviously even 10, 20, 30 years ago as, as a quote unquote Catholic, he was talking about this issue very, very differently. Still, sometimes he you, you see that because I don't know if because... Uh, He's just used to talking about it that way, or he literally slips in time. It's not clear <laughs> from many of his other statements, right? Um, but but sometimes you still hear from Biden this like safe, like legal, rare language. He condemns it from a moral perspective. It says, well, it's between a woman and her doctor, and state shouldn't get involved. This is all sort of old language from the Democratic Party that I think is very much out of favor with the party's activist class and therefore with its politicians. Um, the language now is very much to celebrate abortion. So yeah, I think they are the party of abortion. Abortion wasn't always a partisan issue. Um, and it's one of those interesting effects in the 70s. And whether it has directly to do with Roe v. Wade taking it out of the public square, I don't know. But there were once a lot more pro-choice Republicans and a lot more pro-life Democrats. It was much more mixed. Like, yes, there were some general positions on the issue, but it really crystallized between like, let's say 1975 and 1990, where it became very difficult to run as a pro-choice Republican in most states uh, and vice versa if you're a Republican. But I remember even Rudy Giuliani, when he ran for president back in what, 2008, 
he was openly pro-choice. I mean, he was moderately pro-choice, but he was openly pro-choice. Um, and that's the last person I can think of on the national stage that really did take the position contrary to the rest of their party on this issue. It really has become very much, basically, if you are pro-life, chances very, very high that you're voting Republican for other issues and aligned with the Republican Party on other issues. Uh, if you're voting pro-choice, your chances are you're much more aligned with Democrats on this issue. But as I said, there are those exceptions of the, the folks who have moved from 1990s liberalism to being on the conservative side of the of some of these cultural issues surrounding trans or school curriculum or, or whatever else. For them, I think they will be put in a very uncomfortable position where they may have to choose between the party that supports their abortion views and the party that supports, I don't know, not transing children. So they're, they're in a tough spot. And you, you talked about how if you look at the sort of polling more deeply, you see that Americans are probably would overall settle on more of a European position, a kind of a compromise on the time limit, probably around 12 to 24 weeks, which is where most European states are. But one thing I think that's been quite striking in these special elections is the turnout of young people motivated by the abortion issue. And I wonder whether you think when it comes to the culture wars, the muscle for sort of ethical reasoning, one way or the other, has atrophied more among young people now. So they will not be interested in actually the the sort of complexity of the issue of abortion. They will just be driven to the polls by kind of cultural rhetoric from the more activist left on, on the matter. I kind of question the narrative that this issue is driving young people to the polls. I think the bump that Biden got in the midterms from young voters has a lot more to do with student loan forgiveness yes, yeah. than it has to do with abortion. Yeah. I, look, I'm, I, I can't say for certain I haven't done any huge level demographic analysis of, of voters, but my gut tells me that actually the, the voter most motivated by the abortion issue is suburban women, maybe age 30 to age 55, right, is actually not 22-year-olds in part, I, I mean, I think there's all kinds of reasons why that might be so. One, if you're on the left, you could say like they just don't understand how bad old days could come back and need to get an abortion in a back alley with a coat hanger. They just don't understand that because they're not old enough to even have that as part of their cultural memory. I suspect they just are thinking about other issues. I think they probably that young voters probably do lean pro-choice. Um, so it's not that they disagree, but I, I tend to think that that bump... That bump, at least in the polls, didn't happen until Biden announced the loan forgiveness plan. I agree. I agree. Um, I remember. I remember that bump. Yeah, it's an amazingly cynical piece of politics, and and that worked very well. Oh, and he knew it would be struck down afterwards. Yes, right? yeah. um, it, it was, the administration understood very well that the student loan forgiveness would be struck down, uh, but they use it to drive votes, and it worked. And on Joe Biden, I mean, it's been said a lot, but it's it's worth saying again in twenty twenty. It's probably fair to say uh, the majority of Americans had a different idea of Joe Biden to the one they have now. I think he, Republicans used to say he'd be a Trojan horse for the radical left. And that sounded a bit ridiculous because he, for so many years, had been a, a kind of centrist figure on Capitol Hill. And in his rhetoric, he sounds quite 90s. He sounds like a 90s Democrat. And yet we can all see that his administration has been to the left of that. And he is just a muddle on lots of issues. Do you think that the perception of Biden as a sort of silent generation, good old boy who just wants to, you know, make compromises and be be a decent man on moral issues has changed? I mean, that's the big question is how much Joe Biden can claim to be 
a return to normalcy after his term, right? And I do think there are a lot of people who are attracted to that idea of turning back the clock, let's say, to 2015. That sure sounds nice to a, a lot of American voters, I think. Uh, to that end, I do think Biden's scandals and his corruption scandals now that are, are unavoidably coming out in the media may hurt him more than Trump's scandals hurt Trump, uh, in part because people expect that kind of behavior. It's part of it's, it's already priced in, as the, the Wall Street bros say. Nobody thinks of Trump as the, the return to normalcy or, or a staid figure that's, that's going to let everyone forget about politics. Uh, everyone understands that as soon as Trump gets in the room, Trump is the only thing that matters in politics, right? But I do wonder, I don't know, but I, I do wonder if it hurts Joe Biden more, uh, if that image, which I think was always false, actually, right after his election, I think I published with The Spectator, saying that Americans did not vote for woke neoliberalism, but that's what they're going to get with the Biden administration. I think that's a pretty good description of what he's done, honestly, which is funny because Joe Biden is one of the last Democratic politicians who can still talk old fashioned labor politics, old fashioned left labor politics. And if you, you notice his State of the Union speech, I think initially his first State of the Union speech, and I think second, not the one with the Nazi imagery behind him and where he was talking about his, his enemies. Um, but the other State of the Union speeches were actually much more focused on big spending bills in Congress and delivering benefits to, to working Americans. Uh, I disagree with those things, obviously, as a, as a conservative, somebody on the right, but I think that's a much more popular message. But then I don't really think Republicans have capitalized well or, or forced a unwilling press to talk about a lot of the moves that the Biden administration has made in terms of cultural issues. So they haven't talked a whole lot about how the Biden administration is now redefining sex in Title IX. By the way, I think they dropped the women's sports piece of that after the elections on purpose. They know that that's a very weak spot for them. I mean, my, uh, an organization that I work for, Independent Women's Forum and Independent Women's Voice, we've been talking a lot about Title IX and those issues, but um, I don't think, I don't see as enough Republicans, elected up Republicans, really going after Democrats on the things that Joe Biden has done with regard to the definition of sex, with regard to women's sports, with regard to, I mean, this is this piece is almost dropped out because Me Too seems so passe at this point, but Biden has brought back the inquisition squads on college campuses, right? So part of the Title IX regulations has been to demolish due process rights for mostly young men accused of sexual impropriety on campus. Um, these are really radical regulations that conflict with federal court decisions um, and including Supreme Court decisions on due process rights. And they are an incursion on those rights, but it almost dropped out of the conversation because in the same batch, they redefine sex to mean whatever you feel like that day. So that kind of took, you know, to the extent that there were any headlines for Title IX, that took the headlines. But there are many examples like this. I'm just, that's what I, I am interested in. So that's what I, I follow. But there are many examples like this where the Biden administration has been extremely culturally radical, but somehow Joe still gets away with with being old Joe and talking about like I'm I'm a moderate. I don't think this. I don't think that. Right. Um, even as they have transgender influencers, you know, flashing people on the White House lawn, um, somehow that seems not to stick to Joe Biden's image. Which is why I wonder if his scandals will. But I, I think it's an open question. I do think that Joe Biden's single positive asset right now politically is that he still has this very hard image that to my mind reflects nothing of the reality of being moderate, culturally moderate, 
sort of the steady hand on the tiller. I don't think he ever was that, but he certainly hasn't governed in the last three years that way. And you don't think that the culturally, the more hot mutton cultural issues that we, you're talking about there, trans rights, critical race theory and so on, you don't think that they are pushing a compromise on abortion and, and gay rights further to the left, if you like to use the left, left-right on this, than they were. And so, you know, to be a moderate now, you would say a moderate on gay rights, for instance, Barack Obama would say it's above my pay grade not so long ago, but no moderate Democrat or no public moderate Democrat would say that anymore, I don't think. No, I think these issues are quite separate, right? Abortion, you did not see the same trajectory in polls while abortion was on the shelf in the Supreme Court, let's call it. You maintained basically polls of Americans disagreeing with abortion or certainly disagreeing with late-term abortion, right? Gay marriage has followed a very different track where it was extremely unpopular as late as 2008, 2010 you have a Supreme Court decision, and then it really is a case of law-leading culture, Mm. right? Where in the polls, opposition to gay marriage all but disappears. I mean, the majority of Republicans say they support gay marriage. I would add one caveat at the end of that. I do think the Overton window is somewhat breaking back open again because of the perceived or real ties between gay rights issues and, and trans issues. I do think that People are tired. I think that's uh, very much the target boycott going on. Um, I don't think it was specifically, and if you look at the videos of people saying they're not going to shop at Target anymore, it wasn't focused only on the tucking swimsuits for kids, right? Um, Yeah, just tell us a little bit about that target boycott because a lot of our listeners might not be aware about that. Yeah, so there were two major, in my view, successful boycotts from the center and the right. And the right has not been successful in the past, pushing back against corporate wokeness with boycotts. But uh, there have been two, to my mind, successful attempts to do that. One is Bud Light, which is now selling off brands and dissolving. I mean, it may just permanently kill off uh, the brand of Bud Light. Now, it's a special case because, I mean, between bad light beers, there really isn't that much of market differentiation. All you have is your branding, and it's very easy to switch. So it's kind of the easiest possible situation, I think, to boycott. Target was much more parents. So it started over Target selling uh, swimsuits to allow you to, to tuck your male genitalia, right? Women's swimsuits that allow you to tuck your male genitalia. But I, what I was going to say is I think the Overton window is now more open than it has been any time between 2010 and, and the last couple of years on some of these issues. because. I don't think the backlash has been limited to just issues uh, of minor uh, minor transition. I think people are generally tired of having the rainbow flag shoved down their face and their children's faces all day, every day. Uh, it's it's really unbelievable. Like I recently um, visited family in Poland, and it struck me how unusual. I saw one rainbow flag the whole time in ten days that I was there. And it struck me how much of a ubiquitous fact of American life it is. Just you, you walk around, even when it's not June, it's just constantly, you know, every ad, every, um, you know, storefront. Uh, it's, it, it is a little bit, it gets at some point, it gets to that greengrocer sort of situation where everyone just puts it in the window because they're afraid of what it means if they don't. And I think there is some softening on the general support for 
perhaps gay marriage, although I don't know if there, there's a way to draw a direct line between those two things. I think people are just sort of sick of the advancement of the rainbow coalition to the top of every conversation. I do think it's a sort of leave me alone impulse. Like I don't want to, don't want to deal with it anymore. We've, we've seen it in front of us for decades. It's gotten to this very extreme point where it's become controversial to say that people with penises are men and you know, people with vaginas are women, women. Right. So I think people are just very fed up with it. So I do think that Overton window is shifting, but I do generally think abortion is very much a live issue that was constrained by the Supreme Court, whereas gay marriage, Americans pretty much just packed away as a political issue after the Supreme Court decided to constitutionalize the issue. And it, it sort of ceased to be a, a bludgeon in politics. And, and the Democrats have tried to make it a bludgeon in politics, but they've shot themselves in the foot because they can't they can't just bring up a resolution on gay marriage, right? It has to be abortion, gay marriage, trans rights. They want to tie all those things together. And I think they would be able to put Republicans on the back foot if they would bring up resolutions just affirming gay marriage alone with no accoutrements added. But they can't seem to manage to do that because of their own coalitional instincts. So they haven't managed to really make gay marriage any kind of political culture, because I think most of America considers it settled. We've certainly seen Pride. There's been a bit more cultural pushback against Pride as a sort of month that every corporation has to embrace and that every city has to roll out. There's been a bit more of that. And just to say, because I think I, I think a lot of Brits don't know what the Overton window is. And I think Americans talk about it more. The Overton window is the the sort of frame of acceptable opinion, is it not? Right. Yeah. So I think you're right. I mean, I think that it's becoming more acceptable to express a view like I'm sick of pride month. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that necessarily translates. We'll see, but I don't think it necessarily translates into a a bump for, for example, repealing gay marriage. But I do think that there are two years ago it was I was very fringy for saying that, that I'm I'm very sick of this is kind of that meme on on uh on Twitter and elsewhere where there's the kid with a tuba over her face and it's just like the LGBT flag, right? Um, I, I was extreme for saying that yeah. two or three years ago in a way that I don't feel extreme saying it now. So I think, yes, it has become more acceptable in a moderate to conservative space to say, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of Pride Month. I don't need to see this. I don't need to see men and chaps, you know, without or trying to think of a way of saying this that doesn't swear. But anyway, <laughs> I, I don't I don't need to see any of this in, in the public square. It's um, so I think that that view has become has garnered a lot of support in the last two years because people are turning a corner on being fed up with it. Well, Ines, we don't think uh, you're an extremist at all. And we're delighted to have you on Americano. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thank you for thank all you your, so much for having me. Thank you for all your intelligent insight. Thank you, Ines. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. <laughs>